When I was in second grade, my favorite book was this little yellow paperback that was the story of saints. In all the same ways that people talk about the Bible as an instruction manual for life, I had the sense that everything that I could ever want to know about what it meant to live a good life, to be a good person, was contained in this one little yellow book and its stories. This should horrify you. I mean, have you ever read the stories of the saints? They are filled with stories of women who starved themselves or who submitted to torture or who tortured themselves or all of the above. The path to sainthood, that is the path to being the best good person, or to put it in the terms of our series, the path towards the essentials of life, is laid out in these stories as a matter of stripping away not just material goods or unhealthy habits, but stripping away of the very self. For all people, and especially for women, according to this book, to remove any trace of the individual is to live a life more fully at one with God. To live dedicated to God is another way to say live to live dedicated to that which is the most important. Remembering that God is simply another word for ultimacy that is the ultimately important, the ultimately meaningful. Remembering that God is also another word for the ultimately mysterious and unknown reminds us that every attempt we make to live a life of such dedication is always an approximation and a practice that will fall short. The trying is the point. Now, even if you didn't obsess about St. Teresa of Avila as a child, at some point or another, you too probably got the message that the barrier between you and a life of ultimate purpose, the barrier there is you. Your desire or your ego, your body and its needs, your being too much or not enough. The saints and the mystics use the word annihilation, as in to be one with God was to fully annihilate the self. To find the essential life was to annihilate the self, the individual. These sorts of messages are why Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau's message of individualism resonate for so many of us when you are told that the essential facts of life have nothing to do with you, that you are actually the obstacle in the way of essence, it is intensely liberating and healing to hear that you are not the obstacle, but rather you are life's essence. You are what is essential. You are not in the way. You are the way. 
No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature, as Emerson wrote. Or, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, as Thoreau described. The transcendentalists were a strong corrective for the no-self imperative of the moral life found in more traditional religious messaging. Instead of no self, the path of the essential life became only self. It is only what will I do with my one and wild and precious life? What will I do? As Unitarian Universalist minister Cheryl Walker has said, for many people who felt the heavy yoke of being in communities of faith where they could not be fully who they are, Individualism tastes like a food they've been hungering for. But, she says, it is only good when we are starving. Once we have had our fill, we remember that both of these paths are half-truths. Focusing only on the self or focusing on none of the self, both fail to account for the fuller story of what is actually essential that is the truer path of the essence of life, which is relationship. The ways that the self comes into relationship with other selves, the ways that me moves to we the ways that we are all in this together. As Margaret Wheatley writes, the scientific search for the basic building blocks of life has revealed a startling fact. There are none. The deeper physicists peer into the nature of reality, the only thing they find is relationships. Even subatomic particles do not exist alone. Although physicists still name them as separate, these particles aren't ever visible until they are in relationship with other particles. Everything in the universe is composed of these bundles of potentiality that only manifest their potential in relationship. Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh takes this even further, inviting us to consider life at its most essential, not just in terms of our interconnectedness, that is our relationship with other people, but also our interconnectedness with all of life across time and space and species. But what it's what he calls our interbeing. He lifts up the biological reality that our body is a community. Our body is a community. And the trillions of non-human cells in our body are even more numerous than the human cells. Without them, we could not be here in this moment. Without them, we wouldn't be able to think or feel or speak. There are no solitary beings. The whole planet is one giant, living, breathing cell with all its working parts linked in symbiosis. To discern what is essential in life, 
with relationship and our mutual potentiality as a starting point is infinitely more complicated and humbling than either the no-self or the all-self path offers. Especially when you add in those non-human relationships, it invites us to both step up with all that we are and to surrender entirely, to offer everything and yet know nothing, to accept that there is wisdom not just in every other person, but also in plants, as Potawatomi writer Robin Wall Kimmerer teaches, or in marine mammals, as Black feminist Alexis Pauline Gums leads us to. There is ancient wisdom, and there is future wisdom, and we need all of these ways of knowing and living, and by holding each of these, all of these, contradictory and chaotic though they may be, this is the only way to live dedicated to that which is most important, the ultimately meaningful, that is, the ultimately mysterious and unknown. It invites us to hold at the very center of our lives the awareness that we have a peace. And it is a very small piece of the truth. And so we keep practicing, knowing that all we offer in this quest is an approximation. Everything we do will fall short. It is the trying that is the point. So it's not often that I can say that I was embarrassed by my connection to joy, but this week I really felt it. I was with the caring team at Foothills Unitarian Church, which is the congregation I serve in Fort Collins, Colorado. And together as a team, we were watching this clip from the Pixar film Inside Out. Now, if you haven't seen it already, Inside Out is really a fantastic movie. I am not a big kids movie person, but this movie is for everyone, even though it is an animated feature. And the movie explores the emotional life of a girl named Riley, who recently made a big cross-country move. She's growing up and going through a lot of changes, and we get to know the emotions living inside of Riley. And in fact, each emotion in Riley's inner world is a different character in the movie. So there's a joy character, an anger character, a sadness character, etc. And we see these characters play out what's going on in Riley's emotional life. And so in this scene that we watched, one of Riley's imaginary friends, her favorite imaginary friend, who happens to be a great big pink elephant named Bing Bong, Bing Bong loses a treasured wagon that he and Riley used to play with. And in the process, it really dawns on him that she doesn't need an imaginary friend anymore. She is growing up, and that's not something that is important to her anymore as she's getting older. And the full weight of this realization settles in for Bing Bong that he isn't needed anymore as someone's primary imaginary friend, and he is bereft. He is just shocked and stunned and immobilized by grief. And he sits down and is staring out into space, just 
totally lost in his sadness. And so the other characters start looking at each other, trying to figure out what to do, because they have some place they need to be very soon. And this is really surprising because Bing Bong is usually an upbeat and fun member of the group. And now he's just sitting there, lost and mournful and totally immobilized. And the, fr- the his friends, Joy and Sadness, they need to figure out how to pull him out of his funk because honestly, it's kind of ruining everything. And so Joy strides up to take a crack at it first. And this character of Joy is just beaming with upbeat excitement and also no small measure of desperation as well. And she says to Bing Bong, hey, it's going to be okay. We can fix this. And she tries to distract him with tickling and with goofy faces and making a game out of what's going on. And what impact does this have on Bing Bong? Absolutely none. He's not having it. He's ignoring her. It really doesn't help at all. He just keeps sitting there. And then sadness moves in and sadness just sits down next to this big pink elephant and she places a hand on his shoulder and she says what is true. It's sad. She invites Bing Bong to go into his feelings, to reminisce about all the good times he had with Riley. And pretty soon he just breaks out in tears, sobbing. But after being heard and understood and having a big cry, He's ready to keep on moving. And so after this clip concludes, I turn back to our caring team and I ask, hmm, I wonder if there's a character you can relate to in the clip. And I probably asked this because I knew who I was relating to and I wasn't feeling particularly proud of it. So on my good days and with most people, it feels really natural for me to just meet someone where they are in their life offer empathy, create a space where they can just have their feelings and move through them. You know, I know how to do that. But when someone who's really close to me, one of my heart people is struggling, really witnessing their pain can sometimes just feel like too much to bear. And so I end up just wanting to fix it or I want them to fix themselves. I feel helpless I feel afraid. I just want it to stop. Uh, I've definitely been known to inform a not okay person that they are actually okay um, or that it's actually not that bad. Hey, look at the bright side. Just anything to get some distance, anything to get some sense of control in the face of a beloved's pain in the face of a child's despair that cannot be fixed, in the face of a parent's frustration or grief, in the face of a friend's suffering that's the result of making the same bad decisions over and over the same old patterns. And this response is so human to want to get some distance, to want to fix it or manage someone else's pain, to not have to witness it. It's so hard, but it's not very helpful. So if it is true 
what Reverend Gretchen mentioned in our first homily, that we get closest to the essence of life, not through the no-self path and not through the all-self path, but we get closest to essence, closest to love, closest to God through the path of relationship and interdependence. Then mindfully navigating our own emotional response to another person's struggles. It's not just a good idea. It's not just helpful or nice, but it's truly a spiritual practice. Because we can only come into the fullness of our own truth. We can only grow our own soul, mend our own life, while actively engaging in the undeniable reality of our relationship with other people. This dynamic tension between freedom and connectedness, this paradox of individualism and interconnection, this is the beating heart of life's essence. And it's always in process. So in practical terms, what does this mean for us? What does it look like to tend to our own heart, to tend to our own needs within the context of the complex ecosystem of life and spirit? Well, in this very training that we were watching the clip for and looking at how joy and sadness both responded to heartbreak, uh, we were talking also about the skill of reflective listening. Now, you very likely heard of reflecting list, reflective listening before. Sometimes it's called mirror listening or active listening. Reflective listening is being able to identify and reflect back another person's feelings so they know they're being understood and to help them find clarity for themselves. And this can be an incredibly supportive tool for helping someone process their feelings. And the steps are really very simple. So the first step is you listen, and you have to listen without judgment. Listen without planning what you're going to say next in your head. Forget your agenda. Forget trying to solve this person's problem. Just be present and listen and focus on the other person. And then as you're listening, in your mind, try to identify and put a name to the other person's feelings. Maybe it's fear or disappointment or sadness that you're hearing. And the next, when the time is right, and it feels natural for you to take a turn to speak, you can name and reflect back what you hear the other person sharing. I hear how sad you've been feeling. Sounds like this has been a really frustrating experience. You can say their very words right back to them, or you can paraphrase what you heard. And What is so interesting about this tool is that on the listener's end, it can feel simplistic, maybe even a little insulting to simply repeat back what you heard the other person say, reflect back the feelings that they're experiencing. And that's because it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that it feels so good to hear someone else reflect back our own words and reflect back our own experiences. And it's healing to be heard by somebody who is genuinely just trying to understand your experience. When we are listened to deeply, something shifts. 
Feelings get metabolized and the web of connection moves into a new shape. Now, I don't have some naive or simplistic idea that reflective listening is going to save the world, that it's the best and only technique for supporting someone in hard times. But I wanted to share this tool on this particular occasion because it's such a beautiful, simple dance to help us honor the reality of our essence, the reality of the fact that our individualism and our interconnection are in play together as one. And the boundaries in reflective listening are so lovely because the responsibility and the ownership of the story stay with the speaker. And the listener offers empathy and support, but doesn't own the message, doesn't overreach with unsolicited advice or with heavy judgment. So this exchange between the listener and the speaker, it connects them into the deeper paradox of the essential. Though we are each our own people, we are all profoundly interconnected and interdependent. And our healing and our interbeing is most fully invited in when we companion each other as discrete individuals, one heart to another, one soul to another, reflecting, connecting, but not merging, holding boundaries that are not walls of steel, but sites of exchange and growth. May living in the sacred tension between individualism and interconnection heal us and set us all free. Amen.